So this is Matthew 14, verses 1 through 23. It says, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him, John, to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came, Jesus' disciples, or sorry, John's disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. Then they said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowd to sit on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men besides women and children. Immediately... He made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for uh, your grace Uh, that we are able to be here this morning and worship and hear your word. Um, I just pray that your spirit would uh, calm our hearts, open our eyes to what you have uh, for us to receive here from your scriptures this morning. Pray for Pastor Matt as he brings the word that you would uh, give him clarity of thought and words and, um, and bring the message that you have for us this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Peace be with you. Uh, As we've already kind of mentioned, this is a series, we're in the middle of a series exploring how God consistently uh, loves to be a source of healing and hope to needy people, 
uh, to what we call the least of these. That's the Bible's language. Um, to, be, to be Christian uh, is to be someone who sees yourself as needy, at least, at least at the very least on a spiritual and emotional level. And it's also uh, to be Christian means to come under the tutelage of Jesus, literally to become a disciple of him, to follow and to learn, to take up his yoke, and to learn what it means to develop his kind of heart and the way he cares for people. Um, and, and, and that's a core value in this church, this idea of, you know, to be Christian is to be one who enjoys and puts out effort in trying to be a source of healing, refreshment, and renewal to people that are beat down. Um, and so uh, what good, you know, are we as a church if we've got all the, the, the right truths down and we talk about them and we teach them, but we lack mercy? If our culture at least within our community here, if our culture is one that lacks compassion and, and mercy for people, um, even when they don't deserve it, if, if we lack that, then what good are we? And so um, now, these two stories, if you notice, maybe you've never thought of putting them together, but they're brilliant when you put them together, especially when you see what Matthew's doing. And these two stories back to back that we just read, they're just simply astounding. I don't know if you've ever studied them before, you're familiar with them, but it's just astounding alone to look at them and recognize the humanity of Jesus, the heart of Jesus, the character of Jesus. It really comes out, it shines, and, and, and really what I would say even the leadership of Jesus. Just Jesus is a genius. I mean, he's just brilliant um, in what he does and how he responds in these kinds of moments. Now, to set that up, the, the other day... Um, I was having a particularly hard day, and it was the end of the day, and I was, <laughs> I was getting ready for bed, and I, was, I, I, I bowed my head in prayer, and I was offering up my kind of typical end-of-day prayer, which is basically me saying, you know, oh, God, I'm exhausted. Um, I'm off duty. You're in charge while I sleep. Um, and as I'm pleading, you know, to the heavenly host... Uh, my sufferings and hurts and just the things that have kind of had me uh, stretched and stressed, I felt this little tap, you know, on my shoulder. And I, you can picture me and my face bowed to my hands and I look over and my youngest is a foot from my face, uh, you know, protesting. She's protesting that she can't sleep and needs water. And I'm like, do you see what I'm doing here? You know, um, there's just no regard <laughs> uh, for the sacred. Uh, it's how it is in my house. It's how it is, I'd say, in a lot of your houses. There's not exactly uh, a lot of space uh, to be in solitude, <laughs> to have any privacy, uh, to process hard things, you know? And when I'm processing hard things, I don't know about you, but when I'm processing a hard day, a hard week, a hard season, I very much want to be alone. My idea would be that I go off to the woods and just process and think and pray. Um, when I'm confused, humiliated, beat down, being alone is usually my strategy. Um, it's always been that way. I can remember seventh grade at a tender age of, I don't know what I was, maybe 12. The girl of my dreams, at least I thought was my, my dream girl. My wife now is my dream girl. But when I was in seventh grade, the girl of my, my dreams dumped me in the hallway to my face. And there was no solitude. 
to go process that, I just remember burying my head in my locker. <laughs> you know, just, oh my gosh, humiliated. Uh, when one of my grandfathers passed away a, a number of years ago, I remember going to his barn to just sit alone for a, a little bit, you know, process pain, process hurt, these sorts of things. When you're hurt, um, when you're confused or you're, you're humiliated, you know, at work or in your family, what do you do? Where, where do you go? Um, what's your strategy? Because you, you're a human and you get hurt. You know, and or you're here, you're in church, you come to church, so you get hurt, right? Yeah. Um, what do you do with your pain? Do you shove it? Do you process it? Do you spew it out onto everybody else? Does it just go onto the internet? You know, like what do you do with your pain? Um, pain from. And by the way, you know, obviously, pain. I'm not talking about pain that comes from a stubbed toe. I'm talking about the pain that comes from loss, betrayal, humiliation, you know. Um, I, see, here's the thing. My contention is that pain is never static. It does not stand still in your life. Uh, pain, um, the change is the dynamic of pain. It always shapes you. It will always have an impact on you. I've used this quote before, I'm sure, it's one of my favorites um, by the author Ronald Roheiser, but he writes this, suffering and humiliation find us all and in full measure, but how we respond to them will determine both the level of our maturity and what kind of person we are. Suffering and humiliation will either soften our hearts or harden our souls. That dynamic works this way. There is no depth of soul without suffering. Human experience has long ago taught us this. We attain depth primarily through Suffering, especially through the kind of suffering that is also humiliating. If any of us were to ask ourselves the question, what has given me depth? What has opened me to deeper perception and deeper understanding? Almost invariably, the answer would be one of which we would be ashamed to speak. We were bullied as a child. We were abused in some way. Something within our physical appearance makes us feel inferior. We speak with an accent. We are always somehow the outsider. We have a weight problem. We are socially awkward. The list goes on, but the truth is always the same. To the extent that we have depth, we have also been humiliated. The two are inextricably connected. But depth is not all of a kind. Humiliation makes us deep, but it can make us deep in different ways. It can make us deep in understanding, empathy and forgiveness, or it can make us deep in resentment, bitterness, and vengeance. You see that? You feel that? Keep that in mind, uh, that idea in mind as you reflect on Jesus here as he carries his pain. Uh, maybe you, hopefully you saw that as you see Jesus carrying his pain and responding out of pain because it's really amazing. I mean, if I do nothing else with this text, I mean, if you just see that and then just pray over it, you'll, you'll, you'll be good for doing so. Jesus has just lost his cousin and his colleague, John the Baptist. Very close, and he speaks extremely high of John the Baptist. Uh, if, if you look that up, you'll see that. Um, you know, Jesus just lost him. He, he, John the Baptist has been beheaded. 
and his followers uh, bury him, and then they go and tell Jesus immediately. I'm sure they're thinking, well, who's left to carry this movement forward? It's a little confusing, but just, just to, as a quick aside, so you know, you know, Matthew's telling you this, and as he, he references Herod speaking about Jesus, he realizes, oh, wait a second, the reader doesn't know that John the Baptist was taken and beheaded already. So this is just an aside for Matthew. He's like, oh, I gotta, I gotta fill them in. And that's what he's doing there. And so he's, you have to imagine the pain that Jesus feels. And we read this um, in verse 13. Now, when Jesus heard this, you know, he's getting the news from John the Baptist's disciples. Uh, now, now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Now, there's nothing mysterious there, right? There, Jesus is hurting. I mean, he's the son of God, but he's, he's still human, and he hurts, and he needs, and he wants to pray, and he wants to process this. I mean, what, what would you want to do if maybe your best friend had just been taken and beheaded? What happens, though? Jesus is chased down by a gigantic crowd, thousands, we will later find out. And so there's not going to be a long time for Jesus, right? He's totally interrupted by people that want him to heal and teach, maybe, and what does Jesus do? What would you do? What would you do in a moment of pain and you're just trying to process and pray and somebody's like, excuse me, excuse me, I need your help. It probably happened to you this week and you're like, I don't wanna want really remember that. I don't wanna reflect on that moment. It wasn't one of my better moments. And what does Jesus do? 14, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, here's the thing. I, for, I, for the sake of time, because I can go for a long time on this, but there is a lot that Matthew is doing, a lot. But I think the main thing, if we're trying to keep the main thing the main thing, in his gospel, according to Matthew, this is all about talking about and he's centering this whole idea around the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has come to bring the kingdom of heaven. And he wants you to understand that and he wants you to understand what it's like, what it's about. And so he's showing us that Jesus is building a kingdom of compassion right in the midst or in the backdrop of a kingdom of chaos, a kingdom of hurt, a kingdom of heartache, a kingdom of insecurity and doubt. And by kingdom, I mean the world. See, Matthew brings this idea, uh, she shines it out through first by giving us all these details on what happened to John. And he doesn't have to do that. He could have just, you know, been quick about it, right? John the Baptist was taken and beheaded and Jesus is hurting. But no, he doesn't. He goes into some detail over it. So John the Baptist, if you remember, if you're not familiar, I, I just want to be, help you out for a second. You know, he was a prophet and, and his main goal was to prepare the way, right? Prepare the way of the Lord, to prepare the people for the Messiah, which is Jesus Christ. And, and John saw his role as preacher and baptizer. And what John wanted, uh, the way to kind of succinctly explain what John the Baptist wanted is John the Baptist just, you think of him in like law, and Jesus is like coming in with the grace. But like what John wanted was for all of Israel to repent, turn, repent, repent from your sin and your evil because he's coming. John, that's what he wanted. And, he, and John, it's clear in the text, John the Baptist is not, he doesn't care who it is, who he's going to call out. 
Um, and the last straw of his preaching and calling out sin was this local Jewish ruler, Herod, and this Herod Antipas, just in case you don't know, um, because as you'll find out really quick, the Herod dynasty gets really confusing. Um, and so bear this in mind. But by, by this time in Jesus' life, the Herod, Herod the Great, the, the, the Herod that tried to kill all the, the Hebrew boys uh, when Jesus was born is dead. This is a different Herod. And what remains is a broken, shattered family. And they're feuding over power and land. I have a picture that I was kind of messing around with. If they have it, great. If not, that's okay. But it kind of shows that at this time, at this point, you can kind of see it. But and don't worry. You won't be quizzed on this. And actually, this doesn't even matter. The point is to confuse you. So... <laughs> Um, <laughs> but basically, this is the region. If you look at the little, the little yellow circle, that's Nazareth. That's where Jesus you know, is spending a lot of his time, obviously. The Galilean region is up there. And, and, and the kingdom has been broken up, um, basically, between Philip, Antipas, Archelaus, okay? These are the regions in which they rule because they can't get along. Nobody can figure out what to do. And Rome's really the one in power. Okay, so a little history lesson. This is what's going on, and it's a mess. It's a mess. And so, um, and then what you have is this strange, really strange thing where originally Antipas marries um, the king from the Nabataean region's daughter, and he decides he doesn't like her, so he divorces her. And then Philip, up the top, um, he's married uh, to Herodias. And um, so at some point or another, Herodias and Antipas decide um, actually they like each other. So uh, she leaves Philip, and then she marries. Um, she wants to marry his brother, Antipas. And technically speaking, they're both her uncle. Yeah. Now, my, here's the thing. I could keep going. And now at this point, uh, because he's divorced um, the princess from Nabatea, that region is wait, wanting to uh, wait, wage war against Antipas. And this land area that he owns down here. Are you bored yet? Um, now, the, this is why I'm, this is, there's a point to this, because you're like, what is he doing? The point is, it's a mess, and it's confusing. And if you don't believe me, just do a little homework, do a little Google search, and go, just look up Herod Dynasty, and you will see incest, divorce, uh, he murders his own sons. I, it just is crazy, the stuff that you will find in that. Um, that is the backdrop of Jesus. And Matthew, I think, is trying to subtly show you the subversiveness of what the kingdom of God is coming in, in the middle of that, all of that kind of craziness. Um, this is what he is doing, and this is where he is. The Herods represent the world's way of doing things, particularly the world's version of power. You know, we think that the Herods are crazy, and they are, to be clear. But are you above it and me? Are, are we above it? Have you read a People magazine lately? Look at our culture. Look at our families. Let's be honest. We see jealousy, inappropriate sexual relationships, drunken decisions, vengeance, lust, radical insecurities. All of this is in the backdrop of Jesus' ministry, and all of it still is, by the way, <laughs> right now. 
chaos, jealousy, abuse of power, injustice, all of this. Herod's lust for power in women tragically ends up being the reason that he cuts John the Baptist's life short. And Jesus has to be pained by that. That's what I want to show you. I mean, it's not just that he lost his cousin. He lost his cousin to a guy who's drunk because his, technically his niece is dancing for him. It's weird and pathetic. What is Jesus thinking? He's pained, and he's also thinking this, you know, it's, it's this kind of chaos, it's this kind of jealousy, it's this kind of sin and evil that will crucify me really soon. Bear in mind that Jesus is heading to Jerusalem. So what this triggers in Jesus is just he knows what's coming. His heart is crushed, and he wants to pray and process his own sense of courage, because it's going to take a ton of courage to do what he's going to do on the cross, and so he withdraws. But like I said, he can't. Because needy people do what needy people do, right? They are relentless. They they pursue Jesus. And Jesus simply just refuses to not care. He loves people too much. This is why he's come to heal and proclaim the kingdom of heaven. Now, don't misunderstand me. Um, Jesus doesn't shove the pain. Because some of you are the type of people that are experiencing pain in your past and in the current, and you're shoving it or bypassing it, and you're like, great, the Bible tells me so. No, it doesn't, because that's why I included the end of the text. What did you see at the end of the text? After he dismisses the crowd, what happens? And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. He got to it. He eventually got to it. But in the middle is this massive interruption, and he makes space for it. The point here is this. It seems Jesus has taken the grief, and hear me now, because this is instructive for us. It seems Jesus has taken the grief, the grief that he feels. He's taken the hurt, and he has integrated it into his compassion. It's fuel for his compassion. It's fuel for his empathy for people. As opposed to allowing grief and hurt to steer him towards anger and bitterness. I'm so sick of these people. It's what he could have done. He could have become a cynic. Instead, he becomes softer, warmer, gentler, more loving. He transforms the hurt that he receives or he feels, he transforms it into compassion. That's the beauty of Jesus. That's the thing that you love about Jesus. But that's not the only thing that Jesus transforms, if you noticed it, right? He transforms the disciples' compassion, because they have compassion too. He transforms their compassion into a challenge and growth, doesn't he? You see the disciples, you know, they've been following Jesus around for a little while now. And they're getting used to Jesus. They're, they're learning Jesus' ways of doing things. I mean, they're still slow on the uptake, for sure. But, like, they're learning, and so they're noticing, wait, what would you, you know, they're think, they've got their bracelets on. What would Jesus do in this moment? There's this huge crowd, and they're probably going to get hungry. I got an idea. They need to go eat. Jesus would care about this. I'm going to care about this, and I'm going to shine bright by going to him. Great. It's wonderful. So they're thinking this way. Um, and naturally, what these you know, disciples of Jesus always do 
they're developing this attention for needs. Like they've got the radar up. They sense that there are needs around them. And we read in verse 15, now it was evening and the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Nothing wrong with this, right? It's a perfectly reasonable request and a reasonable idea that the disciples have. They're thinking, hey, um, Jesus, right? Like we know you, we know you care. Uh, These people are not prepared. They're not ready to be out here. They're so desperate, they've not packed their bags. Um, They don't have food. Uh, So send them home so they won't starve. And Jesus does something so fascinating, if you really sit with it and meditate on it. Instead of just agreeing to this proposition, or, or like instead of just taking their idea and saying, good job, well done, disciples, I'll take it from here. But that's not what he does. Instead of him taking it completely into his own hands, he transforms the moment into a challenge. I mean, the fascinating thing about Jesus is Jesus is hurting. He transforms it into compassion. And then, even with his disciples, he's, got a, he, he's taking a moment to teach, to, to inform and instruct them and lead and guide them. It's fascinating what he's doing. Verse 16, um, but Jesus said to them, right, with their great idea, and it is a good idea, they, they don't need to go away. And it's emphatic in the Greek. You give them something. You give them something to eat. And so they say to him, this is me, right? This is me responding. We only, got, we only got five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them bring to me. And then he orders the crowds to sit down on the grass. It's like picnic time, right? And he takes the five loaves and the two fish. He looks up to heaven. He says a blessing. He breaks the loaves and gives them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up the 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children, so thousands of people. Now, I love this little moment, and there's a lot there, and it's fascinating. Uh, It's fascinating for many reasons. And the, the apostles found this moment fascinating and lovely as well, because it's one of only two miracles in, that is recorded in all four Gospels, the other being the resurrection, which is kind of a big deal. So, you know, this is the one. This one made it in in all four accounts. They loved this moment. Why? What is so instructive about it? It's so instructive on so many loves because Jesus turns a small amount of food into a sufficient meal for thousands. And that's a total mystery. Uh, But what I love is how he doesn't do so by skipping them, by bypassing them, which he he very well could have. He's teaching and guiding, and he puts them into a serving, trusting, sacrifice, even sacrificing mode, right? So, because think about this. Whose food is it? They come to Jesus. Jesus, these people are going to get hungry. They're going to potentially starve. Send them away so they can go get food. Jesus says, you feed them. You know, what do you got? And they're like, uh, what did you guys bring? Right? Whose food is it? It's their food. It's their dinner, probably. 
And so they're like, well, we got our dinner, Jesus. We got our food. I mean, but you don't want to do that because it's our food. And it's not even nearly enough, right? You see what Jesus is doing? He's totally in charge of this moment. He puts them into a position of of trust and sacrifice. It's likely their dinner for the night. So they're thinking, Jesus, this is crazy. Not only is this not enough food, this is our only food for our trip. And this is a real challenge, isn't it? What will they do? They're put into a position, think about it, they're put into a position where they care. They care about the needs of people around them. Great, do you trust me? Do you trust that I'm gonna get you involved and I'm gonna push you? It's as if Jesus is saying, okay, you care for these people, wonderful. Get your hands dirty. Put some risk into it. Expose yourself. Allow yourself to be challenged. Allow yourself to be vulnerable and be totally reliant and see what happens. Watch what happens. The power in this moment isn't in um, their service. It's not in their sacrifice. Uh, The power in this moment is in Jesus, to be abundantly clear. You, You see, compassion, though, isn't the only thing that Jesus wants for his disciples. He does want that. But he also wants a sense of agency. And that's the other piece to this text that's so critical. That's the two things Jesus is doing. He's both teaching and showing the compassion of the kingdom of God, and he's also saying that there's a sense of agency in the kingdom of God, that those that exist in the kingdom of God have a particular warmth, softness, and heart towards needy people, and they also have a sense of like, maybe I should take some responsibility for it. They're both there. They're both really challenging. And when they do, when they do pick up a sense of agency, even though they're like, I don't really know how this is gonna work out, But when they do, what happens? They see a miracle. They see something crazy. They see abundance. They see satisfaction. And I wonder, I wonder how often so many of us are sitting around wondering, God, I wish I could see something that's abundantly cool. I wish I could see you move, God. But we just don't want to be exposed. We don't want to put risk into it. We don't want to be vulnerable. And we're just saying, God, this is on you. This is your fault. Why won't you do something really awesome in my sphere of influence? Why we play it safe? You see, the miracle became more than just a great story for the disciples to remember and tell. It became a whole paradigm for them to live by. I mean, hopefully you noticed it. But, um, The language, did you notice the language that Matthew, who writes this account, what he uses, the words that he uses to describe what Jesus did with the meal? For some of you, it it was pinging right away. You were noticing there's four verbs in particular that are unmistakable. Take, bless, break, give. Take, bless, break, give. Where have you heard it before? Right? Matthew 26 Matthew will get there in his story. So he's the one writing it. He's the one choosing to use these words. He's remembering, he's saying, this is something like Jesus said, right? Where else do you see it? That 
moment where Jesus takes this exact same language and he uses this and he, he turns it into this ritual with his, his disciples for, uh, as a way of remembering his love and his sacrifice for them and for us. And he says, do this, right? Do this. But here's the thing. When Jesus did this for the first time in this desolate place with these people, these disciples in that moment didn't realize what they were hearing, did they? It's not like when they were you know, in this desolate place and they're like, we only got a couple fish and five loaves. This is all we got. And Jesus is like, bring it to me. And Jesus blesses it, gives thanks, looks up to heaven, and he breaks it. And he's like, here, give this to them. They're not like, this is going to be communion. <laughs> they're not doing that. They're not thinking about it. They're going, this is so weird. Oh, he's just doing the typical Jewish blessing over it. Do you, under, you understand what I'm getting at? In the moment, they don't know. In the moment, they're just watching, listening, participating. They're, in the moment, they're in mystery. Later, it will make sense. Later, they'll be like this. My, this is conjecture. But later, they'll say, that was our idea. Or was it? Was it, was it his idea all along? And he put us in a moment where we were like, oh, there's hungry people. We don't know what to do. And he's like scratching his head like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then it all starts to, you know, eventually it all makes sense. And, you know, eventually Matthew will be sitting down and he'll be writing his gospel narrative and he'll be like, oh, my gosh. It all, it's all, I'm connecting the dots. There's so many straight lines now. I get it. I see what Jesus was doing. He was loving me in this way. It was his way of showing me what he's doing for me, but it's also his way of showing me what I'm supposed to do for others. It all, it's, it's all clicking for me now, right? This isn't just the gospel narrative. This is just, you know, this is how we understand the cross and the resurrection. It's also our challenge, our invitation. It's our way of living, you know? It's a paradigm for discipleship. You know, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, right? Paul will say, therefore, you're gonna love this one, you're like, wait, I love Ephesians. Do you love this part? Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We're not supposed to just sit back and admire Jesus. We're supposed to participate in the same kind of love, Amen. the same kind of lifestyle. You know, the, the, the idea is that, you know, when we come in every week and we participate in communion, we're recognizing this is what Jesus does, right? He breaks himself and he gives himself for us so that we might be satisfied. Yes, 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 yes. What does that mean for you? The cross just isn't your forgiveness and your salvation. The cross is your paradigm for living. When you, when you come to Jesus and you're like, Jesus, I believe you, I got ideas. He's like, great, I'll bless you and I will break you. Do you want to be given? Do you want to see satisfaction? Bring your own meal. Put your food on the line. And you're like, but I don't want to do that. That's not what I want to do. I want to see awesome stuff and I want to keep my food. And Jesus says, this isn't the cross. This isn't how it works. The cross of Christ this isn't just our deliverance. It's our, it's our invitation to follow and to trust. And so if you're authentically following Jesus, you're gonna soften over time. Some of you are. I'm witnessing it. The last two years has softened you. 
And there are probably some that it has hardened you. And as you're softening over time from the suffering, from the losses, from the hurts in the world, to use Rollheiser's words again, you're going to become deeper in understanding. You're going to become deeper in empathy and forgiveness. And as you experience and see needs around you, um, maybe like it's someone who just needs a meal. They've had a hard go. Or it's someone who just needs visited, right, because they've been isolated for a while. Or they've just hadn't experienced a loss in their life. Or, or a change in job and they're confused, whatever it is. Or you, maybe you, you, you see someone and you're like, man, this person just needs to be forgiven, to know that they're forgiven. Or just needs to, this person just needs to be encouraged. You're going to see needs because you're a follower of Jesus and the Holy Spirit is going to put that stuff into your head. That's what's happening to many of you right now. Okay, so as you experience that, you're going to get these ideas. What does this story teach you? What does this story tell you? Well, here's what I think. I, 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 don't be surprised if Jesus turns your ideas, your attention to things that you see around you. Don't be surprised that if he turns your compassion into a challenge to stretch you. Don't be surprised if at first it doesn't make sense. Don't be surprised that there's going to be moments that you just won't realize how your little contributions are going to make a difference. And I think that that's very much the invitation in all of this. is isn't just to just witness and experience and remember what Jesus does for us, but to also remember that as we step out and we try to follow his lead and become like him, we're going to realize, I need to bring a certain level of energy and agency to my little sphere of influence, and I have no idea what difference it's going to make, but I'm going to trust him. That's the call of all us Christians. To be one of God's children is to be loved and to be served in our great need, right? And it's also to become like him in putting everything out there in our love and our service to others. To be exposed, to be vulnerable. I mean, the future church, it's not going it's, it's to succeed because we're so put together. It's gonna succeed because we're gonna realize this thing is never gonna work unless we're really dependent upon him. We become people that really show and we reveal, we model what it looks like to not have a clue of how it's gonna work out and we're just gonna pray and show up and then pray and show up and be kind and be loving and keep forgiving and keep after it and keep after it and watch what happens. And so... This is an easy one for me this week in communion. But as we talk about each week, um, the night, the last night, Jesus was with his friends before he's taken and, and, and crucified. He, he's having a, a, a basic meal with them and he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And he took the cup after giving thanks and then he said, this is the cup of the new covenant, my blood, Right? It's poured out for our sins. And so as you reflect, meditate, pray, take a moment, just let this sink in, remembering what he's done for you. We're remembering the Lord's death until he returns. We're proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. But in that space in between, what are we doing with ourselves? And that's my invitation for you. If you're a Christian this morning, you're invited to come to this station or to this station and to take part. And if you're not a Christian, Hang back, watch, think, pray, you know, write down some questions, that sort of thing. Love to answer them for you.
The scriptures just tell us to not take communion in an unworthy manner. We all in, come in here broken. We all come in here sinful. Um, we all come in here trying, showing up, doing our best. And so if you're in a place where you know you need Jesus, you're invited to come, take part. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for this morning and we thank you for this story. The fact that it was recorded and left for us is so instructive. It reminds us of your great compassion in your heart. It, 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 rem, it reminds us that, that you love mercy so much. You've shown us great mercy. May it transform us. May it reflect in how we relate to our family, our friends, our neighbors, especially here, even in this body and in this church. Thank you for your son and his great sacrifice so that I could be new, something wholeheartedly new. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name, amen.